This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And I'm the founder of Think Productive. We help people to make space for what matters and get more done. And we partner with some of the world's leading companies who share our mission to transform the world of work. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is Dr. Samantha Boardman. Samantha is a clinical psychiatrist as well as a medical doctor and has a master's in positive psychology. So her work joins the dots between all those different fields and she's the founder of PositivePrescription.com. She's also the author of a new book, Ready for Anything, How to Build Resilience and Cope with Daily Stress. And so in this episode, we talk about resilience, being un-you, how to create uplifts in your mood, and many other practical ways to deal with stress and be happier in your thinking. So I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. I really enjoyed this conversation. Let's dive right in. This is Dr. Samantha Boardman. I'm with Dr. Samantha Boardman. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? Yeah, really good. And you're you're early morning in the States and I'm early afternoon um, here in the UK. Where are you at um, on, on the east coast of the States there right now with normality versus COVID? I'm personally on Long Island right now and New York City is feeling a lot better. So let's talk about your work. With, what's really interesting about what you do is that your background is in psychiatry and then you also have this uh, this kind of uh, secondary part of, of you know, sort of second part of what you do around applied positive psychology. So what was the journey there? And do you want to just give a bit more of the, the background of how you got into to, to what you do? What's, what's been your kind of career story so far? I went to medical school and, you know, you study everything from, you know, GYN to surgery to dermatology. And I went into psychiatry. I really like the sort of collision of science um, and the humanities. And what you do in all aspects of medicine is kind of try to figure out what's what's wrong, what's the problem, what's the symptom. And you focus on a patient's chief complaint if they have abdominal pain or a headache. Psychiatry is the same same idea. You focus on their symptoms. And I got really good at kind of figuring out pretty quickly what was going on and then how I could treat them. And it was something that, you know, I was able to sort of hone in on the issue and then make it a little bit less bad. And, you know, I always thought I got, I got really good at misery and about, (laughs) it was about 10 years ago, I was seeing a, a, a patient who was just maybe shouldn't qualify for a full sort of diagnosis of depression, but she wasn't, she wasn't thriving. She wasn't feeling great. She was having issues with her husband. She had three kids. She was exhausted by at home. And we were trying to minimize the conflict with the, with her spouse. We were trying to sort of help her have less issues with her mother-in-law and her kids. And one day she came into my office. I'd been seeing her for about six weeks. And she said, you know what? Sometimes I just dread coming here. All we do is talk about what's wrong in my life. And even sometimes I'm having a good day and I have to think, what can I complain about? And it makes me feel worse. And you know what? I'm done. Mm. And it was this weird sort of wake up call to me that I had been so laser focused on everything 
that wasn't, you know, on her symptoms, on her issues, on her problems, on her chief complaint, and everything sort of radiated out from, from that, that I wasn't focusing at all. And I actually hadn't been trained to focus on what actually sort of promotes well-being. Even could I help her within some of these issues, find strength within her stress and find sort of meaning within the madness of her everyday life. And that got me to go back to school and uh, and uh, to study applied positive psychology that was the opposite of everything one learns in, in medical school and residency in psychiatry. And it's really the, the study of, of health and well-being and what are the factors that promote that. And and trying to now, I really, my I think of myself as a positive psychiatrist and that I really try to ameliorate symptoms, but also how can I sort of promote well-being? And they're not mutually exclusive. And the idea of well-being being icing on the cake, oh, let's just get somebody to feel a little bit better. And, and, and then you can talk about that other stuff. And I think you can, they can really go hand in hand. Yeah. All the other way around, right? Where it's like, um, let's Zone, zone in on the thing that's broken and then use that well-being stuff to fix it whereas actually there's a there's a much bigger application for positive psychology and well-being absolutely and you know they're not even sometimes you can get rid of like the, maybe the stress in someone's life or what's really like the specific thing that's bothering them but that doesn't mean you have somebody who's feeling really strong or that they're thriving either and mm. to really sort of help them tap into their own strengths and live with their goals in mind. And that's become something really critically important to me. And I think something we've really seen in the pandemic, like a lot of people, the things that made them unhappy, maybe it was their commute or interacting with a difficult boss, there was less of that, but there was also less of the things that made them happy. There was mm. also, you know, less interaction, you know, connection with loved ones, that kind of thing. So these aren't just sort of getting getting rid of sometimes the the, the you know, presenting issues or problems isn't necessarily going to sort of unleash or unlock well-being. And I, I think psychiatrists really have a responsibility to to really, you know, embrace both. Before we talk about the book, and I know it's really hard to generalize, but it feels like just a moment in time as we as we sort of come out of the pandemic. I'd just love to hear more of your thoughts about what you think some of the collective experiences have been around that? What have you noticed, you know, both with your psychiatrist hat on and also with your positive psychology hat on as well? Like, what, what do you think are the big things that we'll take away from it? You know, and the big question is sort of what will we keep? You know, I think there's no mm, okay. pre-pandemic. But Great there's framing. no pre, you know, there's yeah. no going back. And I think there is a sense of, you know, even the moment we start asking, what are we, you know, when, when will things even mm. go back to normal? We're assuming that there will be a going back. And I think we're yeah. all dramatically changed by what has happened to us. And there's been a, you know, there's been individual trauma. There's been, you know, loss has been this recurring theme, loss of loved ones, you know, mm. and then loss in more ambiguous ways of just routine of corner bookstores, like things that you people really sort of were connected to. And there's a variety of responses to, to loss, right? And, and trauma, you could have somebody who has post-traumatic stress or you can even have sort of languishing and those are at the spectrum of more serious, um, you know, sort of afflictions. But then the most common response to stress is resilience. You know, that that is something maybe we don't talk about enough. And then we'll see some people who have post-traumatic growth where they have this deepening um, that they, they'll say their relationships are deeper and they feel they've developed new strengths that they see new, uh, have their new priorities and possibilities 
And so what can we take or what have we learned and integrate it and move forward with that in our post-pandemic world? And, uh, you know, I think we're going to have to be really deliberate about that going forward. And uh, a friend of mine had said, well, being through lockdown, we essentially were forced to go on the equivalent of a, of a food elimination diet, but it was a social elimination diet. We sort of were forced to cut out everything. Let's only add back in the ones that make you feel strong. You know, and I think there is some real sort of truth to that. How are we going to connect again with others? And we know from research that the, the, the interactions, the social interactions we have, the ones that are, give us the biggest boost are having a meaningful conversation, number one. And number two, the experience of, of felt love that you're understood, that you're cared about, that you're responded to. How do we bring that back deliberately into our everyday life? Kind of feeling like I want to hook on to a few of those things, but I'm also really keen to get into the book. So I'm just going to dive into the book, which is, which is called Ready for Anything, How to Build Resilience and Cope with Daily Stress. So let's talk about that first of all. So you were talking there about uh, the fact that a very common response to stress is resilience. And there is the sense that you know, actually by being tested, then we grow. But like, let's just flip that for a second and just think about um, things that do cause us stress. And what can people do to to eliminate some of those stresses or to, to live a life with, with less stress? What really got me interested in this question was, you know, we see after sort of bigger traumas, loss, uh, you know, really inflection points that people tend to be resilient. You, we, you know, certainly there's a lot of research about that, about during the Blitz in London, that, you know, they, I think they opened up these asylums, assuming that th there would be sort of mass trauma and that people would really have these mental breakdowns is the way they were described at the time. And then they went unused. Um, and maybe there was other reasons for that, a lot of sort of social support around that strong leadership. But what fascinated me was that, yes, people like resilience is the default, actually, and that people tend to be resilient, but not for everyday things. The everyday hassles are really what build up, they accumulate, and that's what gets us down. And maybe it's, you know, it might have something to do with it, with the, the lack of social support. We don't know, you know, nobody's going to bring you a casserole because you couldn't find a parking spot. You know, so it's this accumulation of everyday things that I think really build up and take the biggest toll on yeah. our physical and our mental health. And this can affect how this can affect our immunity, how we respond even to a, a vaccine. It can affect then also though our mental health. And when we accumulate lots and lots of hassles every day, we're more, much more likely to you know be in conflict with our colleagues and our, our loved ones. And we're just you know, it's sort of when you just feel like you're languishing and just kind of getting by in a way. And what buffers that is uplifts. And if you can kind of create this scaffolding around you of the, of, of what actually makes you feel strong. And sometimes it's almost counterintuitive and that, you know, sometimes the, le the, the thing you least feel like doing is the one that's actually going to provide the greatest boost and help you manage those hassles. Because Hassles aren't really hassles. It's your perception of them, right? So you're less likely to perceive something because there's a lot of stuff we can't control. You know, you can't control in New York, it's the subway or you, for you guys, the tube, if it's going to be late, there's a lot of stress we can never get rid of. So how do we feel strong in the, in the face of it? And by having those, by, I really see three 
primary ways that sort of uplifts function in our lives. It's when we feel like we're connecting deeply with others somehow. And it's when we are feeling that we're contributing to something beyond ourselves. And it's also when we're challenging ourselves in a good way that we're sort of stretching ourselves, learning something new. And th those are often the, the, I think the actions we least feel like taking because yeah. well-being doesn't happen in your head. It's, it's well-doing. It's the stuff that you're going <laughs> to do. Nice. Yeah. I, I think about some of the things that I desperately don't want to do on a regular basis, like going out for runs. I've also been doing the Wim Hof uh, cold shower thing, which feels like it has a sort of metaphorical similarity here because it's the thing that you don't want to do in the morning is get into a cold shower. But but actually there's lots of science around the, the physiology of that, right? And like putting your body under the, the cold stress for 30 seconds actually makes your body more, so you're kind of topping up your resilience in, in that kind of physical way as well. No, absolutely. And I often find it's sort of like Groundhog Day, you know, that it's like there, even though, you know, you're going to feel better when you do it, even mm. still that yeah. you don't, you don't yeah. do it. I often have patients actually keep a log of how they actually feel immediately before they exercise. And then, yeah. you know, yeah. which is like the dread and really do I have to, and then, and afterwards, and that reminder can sometimes be, you know, have just that transformation of your mood when you do that. And mm. certainly like the cold plunge is a perfect metaphor for doing the stuff that you don't feel like doing that actually makes you feel stronger. And why as human beings, we're so, we know it makes us feel good and yet we don't do it. And still we don't do it. And obviously you study this, I'd love to know just for you personally, do you, do you still struggle with the same stuff? Like, do you still have that same thing of, yeah, I know I feel better if I do this and yeah, I know all the research is there, but I'm still having a, a lazy day. But I, I, you know, again, it, sometimes it's like knowledge doesn't even help yeah. that much. It's like, yeah. actually, so what are you going to do? And that's, I, I write about this a little bit in the book too, is this idea of insight imperialism, like this idea that like, oh, once the light bulb, bulb mm. goes off and yeah. I realize that, you know, this is why I do that, then everything will change. And it's not necessarily the case. There's a yeah. lot of lag time, some, you know, or, or a, you know, we call it the intention action gap, like why the thing that you know you really want to do and you have the information about it, but you're actually not taking the action. How do you close that? And certainly for me, I usually Friday mornings, I go and walk in Central Park with a friend of mine. Every Friday I wake up and think, can I come up, up, up with an excuse? I really don't feel like doing this. But I know that, you know, that, that she will be super disappointed. She's probably mm. thinking the exact same thing I am, but that, there's that accountability piece. Yeah. And that when you have, yeah. you know, somebody else who's expecting you, you're much more likely to show up. So I think if we can build those little things into our lives in ways where we're more accountable, more deliberate about it, that we're much more likely to achieve it. Yeah. I'll share a real quick little story around that as well. So I'm, I'm really behind right now on the new book that I'm working on. And I've got a deadline coming up next week as we record this. And um, last Friday, I have this thing in my diary every summer, uh, me and my old business partner, we go for a day long walk. And it's once a year and it's our way of catching up. And I was looking at this day in the diary thinking, I really need a, a day of solid writing and I'm going to have to cancel this thing. And for some reason, I just... I think ordinarily I would just cancel it. And I just had this thing in my head of, no, you're writing a book about kindness. The first part of the book is about self-kindness. Like act your shit, like do, you know, do the thing that you're supposed to do. So um, 
I I knew I really needed the walk and I needed the space and and the conversation and all that stuff. So I ended up not cancelling it. And then when I got to the walk, uh, my friend said, "Well, I'm so glad you didn't cancel it because that we'd had this conversation a, a year a year previous when we did the walk, and he really wanted to to conclude the conversation. And he'd been building up, unbeknownst to me, for two weeks to finish this conversation that we'd had a year ago, and it was going to be this really big moment for him and. I was dealing with all my stuff and I didn't realize that I was about to deny him, you know, mm. if I, if I did cancel the walk. So it ended up just being one of those great decisions. And um, I think sometimes when I, certainly I know for my own, for myself, like when I'm in the midst of um, that sort of stressy narrative with myself about what I need and, and, you know, and, and sort of feeling guilty about stuff or whatever, then, you know, often I just, I, I know that when I zoom out, I'll, I'll feel differently about it. But when you're in it, you just can't, you can't seem to sort of get out of the, uh, the sort of loop of, of that negativity, right? And also that illusion that I think that you're going to, you know, if you have that data for writing, you're just going to be so productive yeah, and, yeah. you know, get that, you're going to finish the book, you know, and, and that, that delusion almost around productivity yeah. that is, really, I think, holds us back. And I remember looking at a study of students who who studied in the library of their university, and they would take breaks to hang out with their friends, you know, every 10 minutes or so. And versus the ones who like stayed in their room or found some really isolated space to, to study. And that's sort of the advice, you know, most parents give their kids or, you know, professors would say to their students, like, you know, just you know, isolate yourself, go off and study by yourself. But the ones who actually took those, you know, 10 minute breaks were the ones who actually did better. Yeah. And yeah. we, we somehow get so sort of, you know, I think our blinders are on. And I was definitely one of those students who would retreat and find like a hole somewhere and, and go and study. And I think probably depriving myself of just that social interaction that actually makes you sort of more curious. It sort of refreshes your motivation. It revitalizes you have these different ideas from talking mm. to somebody else. And it's truly, it, that is fuel yeah. um, and, and brain fuel that we get in that energy that we get from others and that helps us see things so much more clearly and the other thing that is like that too is I think just doing something outside of one's domain. I was just looking at the, the study of, you know, all, we all know that you always get that idea in the shower. You know, that's like when you walk away from your work in some way, or you're you're not even physically sort of sitting down at your desk. But just having something you do outside of your main, you know, your main work, your central focus is so important. And now, mm. you know, we're told today to the advice we get is to focus and, you know, drill down, do one thing and do one thing really, really well. And how misguided that is. And even making peace with the idea of having hobbies. I, I yeah. asked a, yeah. a, a young woman a few years ago who was, I was interviewing uh, what her hobby was. And she truly thought I was you know, an ancient librarian sort of asking her what she does. And she's like, do you mean, do I collect stamps? And, you know, <laughs> it was this crazy, you know, and I, was, I realized how she looked at me as though mm. I, I was sort of asking about some sort of strange thing. And like, yes, in college, she had done things and in high school, like that were sort of outside of her focus, but she wasn't anymore. And, you know, again, looking at, we know, know Nobel Prize winners are much more likely to have other, like they're, you know, they play an instrument or they, they do something outside of their central focus. And having those abilities to go in and out of, I think, and to be flexible and then to yeah. sort of go back yeah. into the thing that you're focusing on, that's where you get those good ideas. And 
and even to be to make peace with the idea of having a hobby that you can you just do for the love of the game that you might mm. even be super mediocre at and like how how just liberating it is to not even be that good at that thing that you do at baking or gardening or whatever that it's really valuable and i think actually does help us be more productive that's so true and i think isn't it sad that we've got to this place where we feel like we don't have permission to do stuff outside of work? It's like, you know, we should be working to live as much as we live to work, right? And so, yeah, yeah that just feels sad that we're, we're there. I was actually talking to someone the other day about how most of my, most of my hobbies through, have been things that through COVID times didn't happen. So I watch baseball, I sing with people, I go to theatre and music and all these things just kind of stopped. And actually that I've definitely noticed has sort of, has, has definitely played a big role in just, you know, my feeling of sort of, you know, depleted um, wellness through the pandemic, as much as dealing with all the stress of work and everything else, it's just like losing those spaces, I guess, to do things outside of work and to just be in a really different headspace. I think it's really yeah. important. Yeah. Um, you talk about the word, the word vitality, I found really interesting in the book. And I suppose it comes back to this thing of thinking about well-being, not as the thing to fix, but just all those little uplifts that you talk about and, and sort of, you know, it's something that you invest in regularly. Um, so do you want to just explain what you mean by the word vitality? And I, it sounds like it has a slightly different um sort of meaning in like across the pond you know uh in our respective uh sort of versions of the english language maybe but like yeah tell us more about what does vitality mean to you i think of vitality as this sense of this feeling of aliveness and energy that you know sort of tells you that you are ready for anything and it's the opposite of feeling sort of depleted or down and i think people often think that happiness is the opposite of depression, but it's actually vitality. It's And it's what we need to counter the hassles. And it's something that then I think gives rise to little r resilience, the idea of like having resilience on a daily basis, not the big r resilience, the rate, you know, the response to the, you know, big sort of bad stuff that can happen. But vitality is what fuels that everyday resilience. And it's it's uh, apparently I have my book in the U.S. is called Everyday Vitality and, and in the U.K. it is ready for anything because I hear that you have a, a very, um, I guess, delicious yogurt called Vitality. So that didn't go down so well over there, but also that maybe it was too much associated with the idea of aging. And I think Vitality is something that we need at all ages. It sort of transcends any age boundary. Kids need Vitality. Uh, adults need Vitality. I think the elderly need vitality and it's really you know and so i really want to look at like what what is that feeling because it's physical it's psychological and where does it come from and it's you know i think a lot of people assume when they're feeling really burned out or like they've just kind of had too much that they need to you know move away and they need to shut down and sort of start over and and uh, sort of eat pray love their way back into to life or take a year off and I was really interested in the sort of everyday ways that we can give ourselves a boost. And there's so much pressure, especially especially in the U.S., to, you know, in the well-being industrial complex. Like if you download this, if you buy that, if you, you know, then you'll be, you know, feeling good. And it's, uh, I think it's, it's really maybe undermining even our 
ability to feel strong. And, and they're just little things we can do in our daily lives, like connecting and contributing something and challenging ourselves that are really the the wellspring of vitality. And it's not in your head. Again, it's in actually your everyday actions. And so, I mean, I just love the idea that you can almost have vitality is almost like a the, the sort of power uh, sort of display on a battery and you can almost like top it up and you can do more of it. You can be really proactive around this. So, so, you know, connecting with people and, and, and kind of making contributions are things that you can start to, you can start to almost turn into little actions as part of your week, right. As a, as a way to, to really invest in yourself. Yes. And, and the idea, again, is so much of it is counterintuitive and I think the message we get sort of culturally is focus on yourself, do things for yourself, you know, prioritize yourself. And we, we forget the, the fuel and vitality we get from doing things for others, even small Mm, things for others in an everyday way. And, you know, you've seen the research on, you know, spending money on somebody else, like the assumption we get so much wrong. We assume we'll feel better if we spend it on ourselves, but actually the bigger boost comes from spending it on somebody else. And, even, you know, we often assume that, ah, oh, I don't feel like having a meaningful conversation or even having a conversation with anybody. I'd rather be by myself. And we expect solitude to make us feel better, but it's actually in connection that, that we feel mm. better as, as you find found out on your walk as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I really liked in the book, uh, that I wanted to talk to you about was this idea of be on you, um, and the subtitle of that section is stop worrying about finding yourself, <laughs> which I just thought was really great. So tell us a bit more about, about how, to, how to be on you. Again, you know, there's so much, you know, I think emphasis about you have to find yourself and be yourself. And when patients come to see me, there's often, you know, there's a desire, an underlying desire to change. But when you sort of get to that place, they'll say, well, that's just who I am. I am who I am. And that's the way it is. And we often forget how much we are changing and evolving and how do we ensure that maybe we're bending in the direction or going in the direction that we we want to be going in. And I think by tapping into our, our ability to be on ourselves, because you say, well, that's just me. That's who I am. But that's, that's a choice. These are little decisions. Mm. These are habits we've developed over time. And when we can be on you by even who's somebody you admire right now, what would they do in this moment? You know, and who's somebody who, who you sort of can look to, because there's, instead of looking always internally and assuming that this, you know, true you is inside waiting to be revealed. I think it's when we are sort of looking in many different directions and many different role models and many different sort of opportunities. That's where we can sort of make better decisions. And I think instead of sort of retreating and immersing, we have, if you have an outward orientation and you give yourself permission to be like, what's the opposite um, thing I could do right now? What would be the exact opposite? You know, and, and for, for you, in a way, you're probably being you was maybe canceling and, and not going on that walk with your friend, but being on you and overriding mm-hmm. that. And yeah. I think it gives us the permission to override ourselves and our inclinations that might not be, you know, the, the best for us in the moment. Yeah, it's good to sort of surprise yourself sometimes, isn't it? And do things that you just, yeah, you're like, oh, I can't believe I made that decision, you know? I think sometimes those are the things that you you remember more because they feel like they're off the script or they're out of the roadmap or something. 
Yeah. And when we're actually not ourselves, we realize we're actually getting closer to the mm. version of ourselves that we would like to be. Mm. Yeah. Do you feel like that stuff gets harder as you get older? So presumably the version of you that you're going to choose to to be in that moment or then to, to be the un-you and ditch in that moment is built up through all of your sort of previous experiences and the narratives that you've been telling yourself. And obviously the longer you have more of those experiences and the more you've told the narratives, do you think they get more stuck? Is it? Do you, do you think it's harder the older you get to, to, to kind of change how you feel and, and act in those kind of situations? I think it does get harder in a way, but it also doesn't mean that we can't in the same way that we, we, we have the ability to override yeah. you know, these inclinations and, and not to forget that. And I think as we get older to, it's sort of more important than ever to, to be on you and to reimagine how you could respond. There's, there's a buffet mm. waiting for you of responses to a situation. How do you feel like doing it? And uh, I think maybe one of the reasons that COVID seemed to actually take such a toll on younger people is, you know, that's when you're in this expansive stage of life and, and you're sort of, you know, trying new things out and maybe, as we get older, you're maybe contracting a little bit. You know what you know, you like what you like, and that's the way that it is. And I mean, I think just looking at the data too on, on people who sort of aged well and had meaningful relationships, that flexibility and open-mindedness is part of it. And that they're willing to try new things. They're not, they're not retreating. They're still expanding in, in some way. And how can you do that? And one um, study I just read was looking at people who who are physically sort of fit and active and staying engaged like that are much more likely to be open-minded as well. Okay, so I'm going to interrupt the podcast, which you know I don't do very often, and that must mean I've got something very important to share with you. So what I want to share is I've got these two really big events coming up, and I would love you to join me. The first is the Graham Alcott Productivity Masterclass. It's a face-to-face, in-real-life event. And uh, it's, it's always typically a small group, so no more than about 30 people. And we're in Islington at Lyft in Islington. It's on Friday, October the 15th. And we'll be walking through all the stuff from my book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja, my best-selling book, over 100,000 copies sold. We've been in, in some of the biggest companies in the world, from Google to Barclays to British Airways to Disney. We've been, we've been all over the place. And we are bringing this stuff to you. So if you want to come and get involved, it's Friday the 15th of October 2021. Lift in Islington. And it's one day with me, basically, walking you through all those different key habits of productivity. We talk about capturing information, how to organize stuff, doing weekly reviews how to get over procrastination email overload it's all there during the day so if that sounds of interest if you're a fan of my stuff and you want to you know really go deep in terms of implementing a lot of this stuff for yourself perhaps you've read productivity ninja but just never really got around to it and you just want a, a day with me to really start to make some of those things stick or you've got particular questions uh, then yeah, the Graham Alcott Productivity Masterclass is probably for you. And there's also still some early bird tickets. There's also discount tickets if you work in the NHS, if you work for a charity, or if you're on your own dollar, basically, as a freelancer. Um, so that's all done on an honesty basis. So just basically book whichever ticket applies to you. And if you go to grahamalcott.com and then click the little button at the top for masterclasses, you'll find all the details and be able to book your place on that one. 
And then if you can't join us in London, then we're doing an online thing, which again, I do I do this once a year. It's called Six Weeks to Ninja. And this year it starts on Thursday, the 4th of November, 2021. It's a couple of hours on a Thursday evening. And the idea is that we again run through all the same kind of stuff, but over six weeks, nice WhatsApp group going on to keep everybody accountable as well. And, uh, you know, really um, it's a chance to, uh, to go through it at, quite a relaxed pace um i sort of put everyone through their paces in terms of um what we do during the two hours but doing it over six weeks i think is a really nice sustainable way to make a lot of these new habits stick um so again that's thursday the 4th of november 2021 it's online so you can be anywhere in the world um it's seven basically seven fifteen until nine fifteen uk time um so we've had you know in the past we've had people from canada and the states and all kinds of places uh you know mainline europe kind of joining uh as well so six weeks to ninja thursday the 4th of November 2021 and through to Thursday the 9th of December 2021 so if you want to get involved in those grahamalcott.com and then at the top of the site you'll see uh, the page for masterclasses and we'll also put all the details for that in the show notes as well Um, so if you're interested in that um, have a look in the show notes uh, click the links through there go and get your tickets I'm really looking forward to seeing you and with that let's get back to the episode yeah, so it's a really nice way of thinking about it, isn't it? To just always be thinking, am I in expanding mode or am I in, in retreating mode? And just kind of using that as a little um, as a little yardstick for, for how you're living your life. I think it's a really interesting one. Um, I wanted to talk to you about another thing in the book. I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right. And it's called the Zygarnik effect. Oh, yes. And I just feel like that would be a really interesting thing when it comes to, to productivity, which is obviously one of the the main topics of this podcast. So um, I'd never come across this one before. What What is the Zygarnik effect? The Zygarnik effect, it was sort of observed by a Viennese researcher, and she noticed how people would, waiters in a restaurant, would have this uncanny ability to remember the orders that were not completed if they were sort of, you know, working at several different tables. But the orders that they had completed and the, and the tables they had served, they had no memory of. And so really it speaks to... I think the way our brains function is that we're really good at remembering the stuff that we haven't done, that went unfinished, that the box we didn't check off on our to-do list today. And that's sort of as you're about to fall asleep, you're like, oh, of course I didn't do this and I didn't do this and I didn't do that. How we're sort of primed for the negative in some way. But, and we then, you know, we sort of get through a day and think, gosh, I did nothing today. And truly are blind to what we saw, like, and what we what we did accomplish, all those things that we did get done. And it's, again, like I think that the, the data is that, like you, you, you have the information. We're all victims of the Zygarnik effect. And we're often focusing on what's unfinished, what's undone, and, and not recognizing like, wow, I actually got that done. That's pretty awesome. I can't believe I finished that thing. But then, so how are we going to, and it can be pretty debilitating when we're just thinking, we're just seeing the stuff that's unfinished and undone. And how do we close that? you know, and close that gap and not let it bother us. And I think sometimes putting, operationalizing our intentions and our plans and kind of closing that intention action gap. And I I love um, that um, research from NYU looking at if you have something you want to do, like you have a wish about whatever that thing is, how do you 
actually get to that place where you're doing it. Because sometimes at the beginning of the day, you, you're you really motivated about it, but then it just doesn't happen. What are those things you can do? And it's really, um, Gabriel Ontingen um, has, has looked at this and she says, people who just are thinking positively all the time, you're probably just daydreaming and you're not going to accomplish your goals. So what are those things you could do? Mm. And she calls it her whoop goals, W-O-O-P. And you have a wish about what that, you know, what that thing you want to get done is there would that you have then the outcome of that wish. How would you feel when you, when you accomplish that? And then you have to identify the obstacle and like, well, it's because I'm looking at my phone or I'm not, you know, I just never get around to it. And then, so what's your plan? And it's the W-O-O-P. And I think that's a really important way to sort of feel stronger in your ability to get something done. Yeah. It's interesting because I often think about that when I'm thinking about my own habits and I'll often frame it like replace, like create this by replacing it, you know, replacing this thing or like swap out this for this. I never think of it as just one thing. It's always, so I guess I'm kind of naturally focused on those obstacles. And the thing that I was interested when I, when I read the Zaganic effect thing as well was whenever I, whenever I do the sort of brain dump of like, here's the stuff that's undone or here's the stuff that I need to follow through. My list is always people, right? So it's like, oh, I need to get back to Anne about that. And then I'll that email to so-and-so. And it's like, and almost like I just, my to-do list that I then would write down would just be like a list of names. And it's the sort of, it's it's the guilt of all of those people, right? But I think that's, a, it's a really big, I think it's a really um, big thing that really hampers our productivity that we don't um, talk about this st- stuff enough, right? That Like that that sense of guilt and we can kind of kind of go round and round on um, just thinking about these things that are undone um, rather yeah. than actually making the plan. It's so interesting you say that about people because it, it's uh, truly my list is the same and it's mm. the, and why do we back burner that, you know, and, and what, what is going on in our heads if we can just feel like we can get those other things done and really centering the those those connections and sort of you know prioritizing those the, the reaching out of that and making that number one on the to-do list for the next day yeah let's think about productivity a little bit more so just having having obviously done the the research that you've done for this book are there did you did you find yourself noticing things about your own productivity from it so you talk about a lot of different biases in the book and I just wondered if there was anything that you'd really started to see where you sort of correlated the research with your own behavior and kind of opportunities to improve your own productivity this book took me five years to write so my productivity <laughs> is maybe <laughs> not well, this one is alongside <laughs> a, a lot of other things though uh, but... <laughs> but no it was you know I I've always sort of tried to recognize myself and I have a, a website too called Positive Prescription and the research and thinking again, well, it's not that, you know, wait a minute, what are these things that actually can make me feel better? And truly even like during the pandemic, like when I did feel like, you know, sort of baking some more cookies or eating some junk food, knowing how that would affect my productivity and truly just how I would feel the next day, how that would affect mm. how I would sleep that night. And I was one of those people who never prioritize sleep. You know, I sort of, again, I think I'll sleep when I'm dead kind of mindset, especially when I was younger and not recognizing the value that that sort of undermined in my ability to 
to be productive, to focus, but also even to connect with other people and seeing so much research around that. And so during the pandemic, kind of creating even real sleep routines and making sure that, you know, I was getting seven hours of sleep a night because knowing that the next day that it, it wouldn't, it, it, it would, it would affect me so much. And so really kind of having those almost lifestyle factors and how important they are for our ability to be productive and focused, but also like beyond that, also to be social. And that also, you know, in turn reflects our productivity. And I looked at this study of people just for four days eating junk food, basically a four day junk food diet and how it really affected their moods, their concentration. But most in interestingly as well was there where they didn't notice it as much as their partner did. Um, so, you know, it's just a few days of sort of do, doing that. And, you know, of course, we all have days where we, where we let ourselves go. But how do we at least sort of put those front and center in a way and be deliberate about it? Because when we're not, it actually, it's not just us, it's for the world around us, too. Yeah. Let's just talk about routines and how you work. So what have you sussed out about your own productivity and the way that you work that obviously you want to get enough sleep and you want to have that feeling of vitality um, what are your tactics for, for getting work done and staying on top of things and, and feeling good about it? I mean, I think I struggle like everyone does with this, but at the same time, I really, I chunk my email. I read it in the, like, I try to get one thing done in the morning before I go into email and then I'll spend about 20 minutes firing them back. And then I'll wait and do it at the end of the day. And I think people who know me know that I'm not the person who's, you know, going to respond because I find it to be incredibly distracting to constantly, you know, we'd spend our entire lives responding to emails and um, also not feeling the need anymore to write the most perfect email. I, I think that I, I spent so much time, you know, trying to write almost proper letters in emails and yeah, really realizing yeah. people kind of appreciate brevity anyway and not having to, you know, write a novel uh, yeah. as, as I do that and not being like pathologically polite all the time. Like, I'm so grateful for this and what you would consider that. And that maybe a little bit less flowery language actually just gets the job done too. Yeah. And so, and do you do email twice a day then? So you sort of <laughs> do the uh, first task in the morning, then email, and then at the end of the day, and then in the rest of the day, you're, you're out of it. I'm completely out of it. Yeah. Do you find you get pushback from that? Like, do you get other people in your industry or colleagues or anyone else wanting you to be more online? You know, I think it's important to be responsive, but as long as I am responsive, then, yeah. you know, and, and people know that I'm not going to be an immediate, like to immediately respond to something. And also I'm a big believer in the old fashioned telephone. If yeah. there's something you yeah. really need to reach me on, you can call me and I will answer. I'll be in my office or I'll answer my cell phone. And so that's that type of thing. I think that, you know, even with, it's been interesting that you, sometimes with, you'll spend you know, 20 emails can go back and forth that you could solve in that conversation on the phone. And so I'm a big believer in just like, wait, we're having this back and forth thing. If two yeah. emails have gone back and forth over an issue, let's just solve it and pick up the phone. Pick up the phone. Um, I had Cal Newport on the podcast recently, and he was talking about in his new book, A World Without Email, he talks about this idea of the hyperactive hive mind, which is this idea that, you know, you're plugged into the hive mind and then you have to be responsive all the time. So Sounds like you've done a really good job of um, unplugging from the hyperactive hive mind and actually, um, and you know, having a bit more space um, in the way that you work. Do you feel like, obviously, the, the work that you do, and particularly around positive psychology, do you think that has a natural uh, sort of osmosis or sort of rub off effect on you, or 
are there times where the opposite is true and you really struggle with it? I mean, I certainly struggle with it. I think sometimes my, I, I definitely would sort of tend towards the more Debbie Downer sort of res- like sort of response to, to situations, but having to sort of kind of take a step back and wait a minute and prime myself and, and f- almost force myself to look for, th- to create uplifts, to prioritize making a, a, an uplift. And I, I really think looking for delight in one's life and yeah. it, which entails sort of putting your phone down. I, I walk in the park a lot and I never bring my phone with me. And I just need, because I'm, I know I'll look at it. I don't listen. I listen to your podcast at other times, but not, um, <laughs> not in the park because, you know, just hearing the sound of a bird or yeah, yeah. If, if you're, you know, having that moment to look up and around you and to see what's beautiful around you. And I think we, we miss those experiences even of awe when we're yeah. so, yeah. you know, when we're immersed in our phones and allowing for that. And you don't have to, you know, go to the Grand Canyon to find awe. There's sort of awe in everyday, everyday even connections and, and experiences that we can have. So it's really, I think, something, something that I have to work very deliberately to override my tendency to maybe be a little bit more negative or pessimistic. And I, I've, you know, it's, it's not that it comes naturally to me, but I know it, it's something that, that is, it's doable. I was talking to someone the other day about how often those moments where you're in the park or you're just in a in a space and just totally present in that space and just noticing stuff, you like you say that can give you such and those can just be uplifts just in and of themselves, can't they? Just looking at someone else feeding the ducks in the park or or whatever it might be, and I feel like I I'm really good at doing those if it's been a prescribed time. Like if I've told my colleagues I'm on, you know, vacation time now or whatever. But if I know I've got lots of work still to do and I know that people are expecting me to be working, I do have this sort of guilt thing that stops me from from sort of getting into that mode, even if it's just for a short period of time. So I, I tend to find that I'm really good at those things on the sort of prescribed holiday days or on weekends is the the regular time. I'm very good at I'm very bounded around not working weekends and, and I do kind of switch modes fairly easily. But have you got any tips for how I can do that? Just, just if I've got an hour on a Wednesday and it, you know, I know it's the thing I need or, or, or even if I, in that moment, I don't know it's the thing I need, but I want to be doing it more. Have you got any tips for just in the midst of everything else being busy, being able to create that space for the uplifts and being present? You know, I think so much of like the important stuff in our, our lives appears on our calendar you know, it's mm. like this meeting, this, um, you know, Zoom, this, uh, whatever that, this appointment that's happening on our, our, our schedule. And so that's what we prioritize naturally. But if we can even take then, if we can schedule those, you know, from 1130 to 12, I'm just going to go walk around the block and I'm not going to, I'm going to leave my yeah. phone upstairs yeah. and even let other people know that that's how we're going to be conducting our our lives. And probably it's going to make us feel better and more productive and renewed. I mean, I I have, you know, patience and the idea of like, oh, if I just sit at my desk all day long, I'm going to be so productive and that's that's where I'll get everything done. But actually, if you do take that break, and I think especially during the pandemic, people not having those naturally built-in breaks where you would, you know, go down from the office and maybe go to the deli and get some food or 
you would even those natural the, the commute even I think for some people was a sort of a space to as you went home to sort of decompress in a way and maybe how could you use that effectively is it like maybe listening to your podcast then or is that like listening to music or doing something that could almost be a decontamination zone and I think we're you know it's been harder to set these boundaries for ourselves but it doesn't mean that that we can't it's just a question of priorities and I often ask patients when they first come to see me, like, how do you, what do you value most? Like put down like three or four things that you value most. And they'll say my health, my family and friends, you know, doing something for others, that type of thing. And then say, well, how do you spend your time? And it's interesting how they're, you know, they, they'll sort of be, as they're doing this exercise, how they'll notice the the gap between what they value and how they actually spend their time, especially their free time. Well, on the weekend, like I just, you know, fell into this social media hole and I was on Twitter for three hours. And then, you know, I like, like was a couch potato for the next four hours. And then if you can create more overlap between what you really genuinely, what matters to you and how you spend your time, I think that's also a way to kind of create a buffer and create more uplifts for yourself. So you are in the face of the daily hassles, you're stronger friend of mine, Gail Bainbridge, who's also been on this podcast before, and she writes quite a lot about money. And she asks the same question, but about money, right? So what do you value in your life? And then you look at your bank statement and how much, you know, correlation is there between the things you say you value and then how you spend your money. And time and money are both, they're both the currencies, aren't they? It's like you can put those towards, you know, where your values are really at or the, or the things that are really going to give you those uplifts. Or you can just fall down, you know, sort of, holes of doing the wrong thing um you also talked about um news and um the the whole sort of idea of of um of, of sort of cutting back on uh your sort of media consumption and and sort of information diet and so on um so i'd love to hear about how you manage that and um uh, what what's been that sort of process for you no, no news on in the bedroom, period. No news on in the house. And I, I actually used to be one of those people when I was younger, too. I'd get home and I'd just sort of turn on the news and, and listen. Uh, the news in the U.S. is, is you know, I, I actually sometimes I'll go to the BBC because I find it to be just <laughs> actually like, you know, it doesn't give me a panic attack in the yeah. same way that breaking news does in America. But, you know, we know there's all this research around it, like people who were more likely to get PTSD after the Boston bombings or even after other pandemics were ones who spent more mm. time watching the news and consuming news. And so it's really important to go on a news diet. I mean, and to really trim what you watch and when you watch it. Like if you're doing it right before bed, obviously that's going to affect how you sleep. But I sort of do it like I do with email. I do it on you know, the bookends of the day yeah. is I'll get my news then. And also you realize that when you're when you're getting your news, get it when it's digested, not as it's yeah. breaking. And oh, also, yeah. I yeah. I have a thing like if you ever see like a panel of pe people weighing in on the news about like what's going to happen next, that's your signal to turn it off because they're just <laughs> like they're just coming up with ideas. They're trying to trying to yeah. predict the future. If it's an evaluation of they something that's know. happened, yeah. by all means, like if it's yeah. digested. But if it's them just you know mouthing off about what could happen, no, turn it off. So what's what's the practical when you say I get my news? Do you see, is that you sitting down and watching a news sort of broadcast, or is that just like a quick website search? Like how do you how do you actually consume it? 
I, you know, I get my news from News Not Noise. It's a, a woman I went to school with and she does, she sort of breaks it down for you. Like, this is what happened uh, cool. and it's News Not Noise. It's it's really great. She's called Jessica Yellen and she does it on Instagram. And it doesn't, it's news that doesn't give you a panic attack and it's sort of what you need to know. So that's how I truly get my news. And, you know, and I also try to get balanced news too. And I'll try to sort of listen to both sides of an argument as mm. well, because otherwise I, I realize I can be, you know, pretty blind. Yeah. And we're all in bubbles as well, right? So I think it's sometimes a really useful act is to consume the news the other side and almost try and put yourself in the the empathy space with, okay, so someone thinks this is correct. And like your first instinct is like, that's crazy. But then to actually sort of follow that through with what would be the values and what would be the the sort of conclusions and, and so on. I think that's a really useful thing too. I was, uh, for a while, I was um, getting this little magazine it was almost like a little kind of um sort of pamphlet thing and it, i think it was called old news but the idea is it was the stories that were the headlines three months ago and then it was oh, following wow. up on here's what's happened with these things since and and so it's always like three months behind and there's something quite sort of comforting about that because like you say that there's sort of especially when i'm traveling in the states and you see the they have the news on the tv in the corner of the restaurant or whatever and it's like just the, the just the the presentation of it and the rolling tickers and flashes and it does make it all seem like the world's about to end. And then you realize it's just actually some fairly insignificant minor story that everyone would have forgotten, you know, in the not, not too distant future. Yeah, no, it it is. It's really important to, to take that seriously and even to engage also with people who, who don't agree with you, you know, we've gotten so, um, and bring humility to, to all of those interactions. And certainly in America, humility is not something uh, that, you know, I've never been in a, like a group of, of, of adults and said, you know, what do you hope for most for your children? Mm. And it's very rare anyone ever says, oh, I really want them to be humble. <laughs> you know, and it was really, you know, in, in this moment, especially for us to bring a little bit of intellectual humility yeah. into our yeah. conversations and understandings. And an old friend used to say to me, well, argue as though you're right, but listen as though you're wrong. And I, I sort of trying to bring that into, mm. into our interactions with maybe people who, who don't share the same views. Yeah, that's really nice and just feels like a really nice place to, to wrap this up. But um, before we go, um, just tell everyone where they can get hold of the book and, and find out more about you and your work and connect with you. Sure. It's, it's, um, you can find me at positiveprescription.com and then ready for anything will be in bookstores. I think, I hope all over the UK or on Amazon. And uh, thank you very much. I really, this was illuminating and truly an uplift. Thank you. So there you go. Thanks again to Dr. Samantha Boardman and also to my team, Emily and Pavel, uh, my researcher and producer on the show. A couple of quick announcements. So we will be going back to fortnightly episodes. I hope that's okay with you um, after our little summer break. So uh, the background to this is we used to be a fortnightly podcast for a long time. And then what happened was during the pandemic, um, sort of lockdown one, we started using the down weeks to talk about topical stuff. It just felt like there was so much going on. And um, I really enjoyed having those down weeks to, you know, and and kind of little slots that you could throw episodes out and um, it just felt really good. And it, it felt like because we were doing that, it made sense to maybe just go weekly as a thing just by default, which we did. And I've just been missing having those weeks. And also it's felt like a little bit of a treadmill. You know, I, I feel like we've not necessarily 
capitalised enough on some of the episodes or really made enough noise about each of the episodes individually on social media and stuff because it's like the next one's coming like in a few days you know you're always only a few days away from an episode so um, we're going to go back to fortnightly I hope that's okay with everybody and um, the plan is to again use some of those down weeks and maybe throw you a few little bits around my new book on kindness in leadership which it's coming together it's been slow it's been a slog I'm not gonna lie um and some of you have been tracking the progress of this a little bit more on my weekly email rev up for the week um which you can sign up to at graymalcott.com if you're not already um but yeah it, fe- it feels like a book that I'm that feels very personal I'm really proud of what's coming out of it and it's also uh probably the most challenging one I've written from a sort of hours in output out point of view and all of that so it's it's slow progress but i'm getting there and i'm just really excited to to share it with you next year it's it's coming around uh, much more quickly than i expected um, so yeah that's what we're doing with beyond busy as ever um you can uh, sign up to my revit for the week mailing list and find out lots more at getbeyondbusy.com uh, there's all the show notes links to previous episodes uh, and uh, just to say, I hope you had a good summer. I had I had an incredible summer. Um, we did a camping trip for a week in the New Forest, which was beautiful. We went up to the highlands of Scotland on the Caledonian sleeper train and walked up some mountains. Uh, me and my little boy, he went to his uh, first ever football game. Uh, we went to Latitude Festival uh, together. And then I went off uh, solo to We Out Here Festival, which... Um, Shout out to the We Out Here crew, but honestly, uh, you don't take kids to that festival. It's, uh, it's very much more the uh, the party dancing till 5am uh, kind of vibe. Um, so yeah, it's been a very interesting, long, exciting, uh, fulfilling summer in lots of ways. And I just cannot wait to just get back to a bit of normality, like normal routine and school runs and, you know, day-to-day work and all that kind of stuff just feels like I've been... Uh, you know having a much needed break which was really lovely but it's time to kind of get back down to it so looking forward to the autumn rolling round Uh, so yeah I hope you had a good summer and uh, yeah we'll be back with another episode in two weeks time because we've gone back fortnightly again and I'll see you then so until then in the traditional sign off take care and bye for now